in, we took a break last week but for our celebration, but we are in a series uh, working chapter by chapter through the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter. And P- Peter writes to Christians who were increasingly feeling stereotyped and marginalized in their culture. And he talks to them at, like exiles, like how do you live faithful to Jesus but when you're feeling like an exile in your culture. And so today we're up to chapter 3 in the first nine verses of chapter 3 as we talk about love and respectful submission. This is where he's going here. Love and respectful submission. Now, usually we just take the verses as they come. I don't read the whole text ahead and we kind of just make it a journey. But this passage of Scripture has been so incredibly misapplied and used to demean and even abuse women, license the abuse of women, that I I just feel like I need to read the whole text for you, and then we'll go back and unpack it, generally two verses at a time. So verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves, They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what's right and do not give way to fear. And husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers." Anybody want to just change spots with me right now? (laughs) I didn't think so. And by the way, I didn't purposely plan this message for two days before Valentine's Day. But here's how the calendar laid out. We need to look at two points of really critical context to take everything we've read and and understand it appropriately. And and the first, and I'm going to give you a little ancient history cultural lesson here is called pater familius pater uh, father familius family it's a latin phrase that means father of the family and it was actually enshrined in roman law in the greco-roman world it was it was enshrined in roman law that the oldest male in the family the father and the oldest of any other fathers that may have been among the children and the grandchildren. The oldest father had dictatorial, authoritarian power over his family in an absolute, unquestioned way. He exercised autocratic authority to not only his direct family, but the extended family, the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, anybody in that household living together. The Roman Empire was a man's world. And uh, paterfamilias codified in Roman law the authority of a man 
to the degree that that man treated his children as property, and he also was the one who owned all the property and all the finances. So that if you are a son and you're 40 years old, your dad may have you managing the business affairs, keeping you pretty busy, but all the money belonged to him. So at best, you're still getting an allowance, like when you were eight years old. Uh, that would make for a Roman-style midlife crisis. And they also, the, the fathers also literally held the right of life and death over their children. If their children were acting up, if they didn't like them, they, could, they had the right to legally sell them into slavery or even kill them. And when a baby was born, the midwife would take that baby and lay the baby on the ground, and the father, the potter, familius, would come, the father of the family would come, and he'd look at that baby and make a judgment. If he lifted the baby up into his arms, then that baby was accepted into the family. If, however, as often happened, especially with daughters, if he looked at that baby and turned his back and walked away, then the family would take that baby, expose that baby to the elements, in so many words, throw the baby into the trash, and that baby would die. That's the authority the father had. Of course, right from the beginning, the Christian church became known, even though people hated Christians in this culture and didn't know why. And, and one of the things that became obvious very soon was that Christians were different. Christians actually went and rescued those babies. I mean, they were pro-life from the beginning. They rescued those babies, and they couldn't overturn this institution single-handedly. They were a small community, but by good works, eventually they began to affect the culture until those things didn't happen anymore. So, can you imagine being married to a guy like that? This guy, by the way, also dictated what gods their family would worship. So, you're married to a guy like that. Now, here's how one ancient historian put it. The lives of upper-class women, upper-class women in ancient Rome, mainly centered on running their households and raising their children. You did not have options here. You, you, you could not be a homemaker and work full-time for BKD at the same time. You, 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 your job was in the home. You were generally kept illiterate so you couldn't read and get an education. You could not participate in politics. You could not participate in, you could never vote, of course, and you, your assignment was to raise your children and keep your home. And uh, if you were not wealthy, but if you were in a lower status, all of that would apply to you, but you would have even fewer rights, and you would have lived a life mainly of backbreaking labor and misery. Women were, like children, considered second-class citizen. The man had all the authority. It was into that context that Peter is writing here. He was not writing to the average housewife who has a job downtown in Springfield, Missouri in 2023. He was writing to women in a culture where it was enshrined in their constitution, the domination and autocratic authority that a husband had over her life. 
When you read these verses that we just read through that lens, it is stunning what Peter actually said to women, how empowering, how, how elevating it was to them. And uh, at the same time, Peter couldn't upset that institution. There was no way. Same with slavery. He mentioned that in the previous chapter. So he couldn't, he couldn't turn single-handedly turn that over. And, and on the other side, if, if women came to Christ and just rebelled against that, it would so be violating a social norm that it would hinder their witness of the gospel. And so Peter is writing to them, how do you live as a Jesus-converted person in a culture like that where you have no rights and you have no options. Uh, the second part of context here is not only, only understanding how different that world was to the world we, we live in when we're trying to apply these verses to women, but the ethic of respectful submission. This is where Jesus went. J Jesus, one day, he found his disciples like arguing over who is the greatest. It was like boys with beards on, you know, arguing over who's king of the castle. And he comes to these young men and says, uh, said, you guys are missing something here. He said, in my kingdom, with what I do, because I'm going to do this with my own life, and if you're going to be my follower, you lay your life down for others. You don't, you don't fight over who's dominating who. In fact, he said, domination by anybody, has no place in my kingdom. He said, you look at the Gentiles, they lord it over people. Now, the word lord alone could be, as a noun, could be a symbol of respect, but, but as a verb, Jesus, Jesus said, you look at the Romans, they lord it, they push you around, they don't care what you think, they're only out for their benefit, not your benefit, they have weapons you don't have, they have authority you don't have, so they get their way, they lord it over you. And he said, in my kingdom, it will not be so. You don't lead that working group uh, at your job by just pushing people around, barking commands, and intimidating people to do what you want to do. You, husband, you don't lead, you, you, you don't do that in your family. Wives, you don't dominate your husbands either. You, Jesus said, Jesus said domination is not what the ethic of my kingdom is all about. It's about coming under people and lifting them up. And this became known as the, the Christian ethic of respectful submission. And we, we just bristle at the word submission in our culture today because we have largely in America today, submission equals domination and abuse. For Jesus, submission equals humility and respect. And he said, when you come, and when you, for the sake of others, even lay your own legitimate needs aside, not because you're somebody's victim, but because you are lifting people up around you. You said the greatest will become the service of all. So this ethic of respectful submission becomes an important part of the context of the kingdom of God. And j just hang with me here. Paul, as well as Peter, will pick up on this. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will say this in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you come to Jesus, you're not, you're not partying, getting drunk like you used to, but you have something better. 
There is something animating and filling and fulfilling. There is the very presence and power of God's Spirit that fills you. He said, don't get out, go out and get drunk. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us what your life will look like as a result. And, and, and it could be translated this way. When you're full with the Spirit, you're going to begin living a lifestyle in which you're singing and you're submitting. <laughs> Maybe not the two things you'd expect. But he said, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Even though nothing in your world around you may make you sing, God's Spirit has set you apart. And there is something singing of the new life of Jesus. And it could be translated as kind of like a present continuous. As you're full of the Spirit, you're singing and you're submitting. You're submitting. And it's not just one-way submission. He said it's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because you now serve him. Because you're nobody's victim. You're nobody's slave. You, you are not, your identity is not determined by any human category anymore. Slave or free, male or female, no. You are serving him. Your identity, the references points for your identity are now Jesus. And in honor of Jesus, you come under and lift up other people. Rather than just, rather than just pushing people around. You, th this is respectful submission. Why? Because the gospel frees us to be no person's slave. But the gospel frees us to willingly lay down our lives as Jesus did to lift up others. Now, Peter in the end of chapter 2 has already talked about this when it comes to a Christian's attitude towards the government. He says, as long as the government will let you without disobeying God, you're, I mean, there's no trashing the flag, there's nothing. He said, you, to adorn the gospel, to have a good reputation for the sake of the gospel, and to live out the spirit of Jesus, you're going to honor where honor is due. And, and so you're going to be the best citizens you possibly can. And then he speaks to the reprehensible institution of slavery, which he also couldn't change. And he said, he said if, you're, if you're a slave, you, you know what? To the degree that you're not forced to disobey God. As far as they will let you, you want to be one of the most cooperative workers uh, in that situation because you're representing Jesus and you're not working for a master, you're working for Jesus. And so, and so you, you are free to be what you ought to be. You want to be the best citizens, you want to be the best employees. And now he's coming and he's going to answer three questions. I'm going to go fairly quickly here. But he's going to answer three questions. And the first one is this. Okay, what if, in the paterfamilias context, I become a Christian as a woman? So what if I have a non-Christian husband? And remember the husbands had control over who, what idols you worship. Can you imagine becoming a Christian in that kind of context? And so he says in verse 1, wives... In this, this is now to, to our text. Wives, in the same way, and there's the word submit, within the context we just talked about. In the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, that would be the word of God, the word of the gospel. If any of them do not believe the word, they may, and he plays, he plays a game with the word word, that they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. And that Greek word for reverence can be translated respect. 
when they see how respectful you stay, when they see the purity of your life, that, that, that you come free from your addictions and you, you're living a holy life and it's going to make them angry sometimes, but in the end, they can't overcome the compelling reality of someone who's living a pure life in front of them and someone who's living a respectful life. And so he's saying, we don't, he said, he said it's quite possible because your husband's domination is so ingrained in society and in culture and even in the Constitution that, that your words aren't going to win him over. I mean, and, and this is true often. If you, if you are married to a non-Christian man, ladies, uh, as some are in our, our church family, um, you're our heroes. And you know what? You haven't seen the end of the story yet. We pray your husbands come to Christ. But they probably won't come to Christ by you arguing doctrine with them. I mean, you may want to give evidence. You're going to be praying for open doors for heart-to-heart -heart meaningful conversations about faith and about the Lord. But probably you're not going to win him with words. You're not going to win him by arguing. And you're not going to win him by nagging him. And you're, and you're not going to win him by playing the sexual favors card with him. Not manipulation, not nagging, but you will win him by the beauty of your respectful life towards him. And so if I was, if I was to reduce that, those two verses to one sentence, it would simply be this. Ladies, don't nag or manipulate, but engage and appreciate your husband, who may be an unbeliever. Oh, but why would I do that? They don't even believe in Jesus. They don't even follow him. Look, don't resent the fact they don't follow him. Just love them. And don't nag them. I mean, my wife is a self-confessed perfectionist, right? And, and, and she could nag me to death if she let her perfectionism get out of control because I am not perfect. But I want to tell you, we men, we're just not wired to do well when we're just nagged all the time, when, when we're just kind of, yeah, put down or, or demeaned, you know, when we do make a little mistake and, you know, you just roll your eyes at us and you make us feel like we're jerks and all of this stuff. I mean, that will not get you to your end purpose. <laughs> but if you engage and appreciate, I mean, that, I mean... Your husband, he's saying, isn't a Christian. He's an idol worshiper. But, but let your purity and your respectfulness carry the day. And, and, and love the guy. I mean, engage. I mean, try to be interested in what he's interested in as long as you're not going to be sinning in the process. Try to, try to appreciate him. And I appreciate the way my wife does that. I mean, I don't think I'm great around kids, but... And I'm going to see my grandson in Dallas tonight. But, you know, even last night, my wife said, you know, I love the way, I love the way you interact with little Paxton. And, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling like I'm not that good at it. But, but she's appreciating and validating. And she tries to be interested in things that I'm interested in. I, I, I get the rocket scientist label because of my education, but... But I actually grew up in a railroading family. I, I worked for the railway when I was in college for a couple of summers. My father worked for the railway for years. My grandfather worked for the railway for years. I think his father worked for the railway. I love trains. I grew up around trains. I love looking at trains. I love watching at trains. I love sitting 
on a station platform, even when there's no trains, just looking at the tracks. And I just love trains. So last year I had a big birthday that ended in O. And so I wanted to take a train trip to celebrate my birthday. And, and you know, my wife, you know, I mean, she likes trains, I think, but I love trains. <laughs> and I, I don't know if trains, you know, energize her or deplete her, but she said, let's take a train. And she actually took a two-day train trip with me. Now, after two days, I felt like we're just getting going. I could do this for another week. You know, and she's going, oh, I'm glad that train trip's over. <laughs> but you know what? To engage what your husband's good at, to engage his strengths, to affirm him, not just nag him to death because he doesn't serve Jesus yet. He said, you may not win them over with your words, but it's, it, it's, it's amazing in any marriage how far a little respect goes. And a little go in the second mile to be interested in what they're interested in and affirm their strengths. This is amazing. You don't nag or manipulate, but you engage and appreciate. That's how I would paraphrase Peter into our setting here in Springfield in 2023. And then he goes on. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. So let's go back to that first sentence. That, that first sentence has been so misapplied. And some of us even early in our, I kind of grew up in all of this, and I kind of still remember early, you know, once in a while, you know, we, we made women feel like you can't be holy until you're ugly. <laughs> Can I just say that? I mean, we kind of got that idea. Yeah, so stay away from that devil lipstick and those idolatrous earrings and God forbid you should ever go to a hairdresser. Just wear it on a big bun on top of your head. <laughs> Peter is not saying don't look pretty for your husband. But he was referring to something in that culture where especially women of wealth would, 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 would adorn themselves in gaudy ways, extravagant ways, that deliberately drew attention to themselves. And even, even the classic ancient writers and speakers in the first century in this Roman Greco culture, even they would condemn that kind of behavior. And so now, now in Jesus, you're the wife, you've come to Jesus, you are liberated but he's saying, don't use that to start drawing attention to yourself. And listen to me, he's saying, and the other thing, that, the other reason people would, some women would go to these extremes would be to sexualize their appearance in their body. And he said, no, you, you, you don't. You, you're married. I mean, I mean, be attractive for your man, but, but don't, like, if, if you have it, it doesn't mean you should flaunt it. There needs to be a modesty and appropriateness. Yes, you can put on the lipstick. Yes, you can look pretty. But when it crosses a line in terms of sexualizing your persona or needlessly drawing attention to yourself in ways that send wrong cultural messages that would discredit the gospel, he says you need to be very, very careful. Rather, 
It should be that of your inner self, he says, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So if I could just summarize those two verses in one, one sentence, it would simply be this, ladies, don't obsess over externals. Don't obsess over externals. I'm glad you look pretty, and you ought to look pretty, but don't obsess over externals. But be at rest in your spirit. And Peter is saying something amazingly true. Because I have, as you have, I've met women who are probably close to 10 on the attractive scale. But inside, they're a mess. And once you get to know them inside, after a while, they don't look pretty to you anymore, even though they're physically very attractive. Because there is something of what's in you that really is the core of your attractiveness. And Peter is saying, no matter how good looking you may or may not be on the outside, he is saying there is something compellingly beautiful about a woman who is at rest in her spirit, who knows who she is, who's just not panicking every other moment, who's just not portraying, like constantly exuding these insecure signals. But she is confident in who she is because she has come to her savior. And the reference points of her identity are no longer in her body shape or, or her sexual popularity. They are now, her reference points for identity are in Jesus and she has a quiet and gentle spirit. And then to illustrate that, he's going to summarize all that with just one word. It's the word courage. And he's going to summarize it in verse 5. For in this way, the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. They did. As much as we bristle at that today. Of course, they had no choice. That was even, even back couple of centuries earlier with Abraham. I mean, they, they, um, they, uh, they submitted themselves and they ordained or they adorned themselves by this respectful spirit. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah. So Sarah was Abraham's wife who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, gulp. And you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. This verse has probably been more used, misused than any other verse in the Bible to legitimate the domination and even abuse by men over women. So let's, so first of all, remember the context he's writing? They can't change the cultural realities of the potter familias. And they have become the servants of Jesus. And the ethic of the Christian community was respectful submission. We respect and honor the people around us and even sacrifice personally to serve them. So that's the context. And, and it said that, that Sarah, we especially bristle at this, Sarah called him Lord. That in the ancient Hebrew context, the word Lord, when, uh, when it's used as a noun, was a title of respect. It, it, it could be said, she called him Sir. It was a respectful kind of, of, uh, of reference, even though in that culture, it was still a male-dominated culture. And 
There's only one time in the Bible, actually, it's kind of amusing, only one time that Sarah calls Abraham Lord. And it's when these three messengers come. Turns out they're messengers from the Lord. And, uh, and Sarah and Abraham are really old. They've never been able to have children. And they say, you're going to have a child. This would be Isaac, through whom would come the Messiah. And, and we're kind of spiritually the descendants of all that in Jesus. They say, you're going to have a child. Now, now Sarah, uh, you got to look at Sarah, I mean, in the orb. I mean, she was no pushover. I mean, you ought to see some of the fights she had with Abraham. I mean, some of the arguments. In fact, one time, she had put her foot down, and Abraham ended up doing something that he regretted later. I mean, she was no pushover. And these guys are come, and they're talking to Abraham. She's supposed to be in the kitchen cooking. She said, uh-uh, no kitchen stuff here. I need to know what's going on. So she's at the door kind of secretly listening. And they say, you're going to have a child one year from now. One year from now. And Sarah starts laughing to herself. And she says to herself, what? I'm going to have a child? I mean, my Lord's an old man. <laughs> and that's the only time she ever uses the term Lord. It could be actually, some, past, some people suggest it's almost a playful thing between Sarah and Abraham. She was no pushover. She respected the leadership of Abraham and the unique role Abraham had in, in her home. But what he is saying, Peter is saying, he's using her as a symbol of courage. Because Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Do not give way to fear. Like the compelling beauty of a woman without fear deep in her spirit because she's full of the Holy Spirit. The compelling beauty of a woman who, who doesn't need to flaunt it to, to feel good about herself or be attractive to her husband but the compelling beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit that is rooted in not being a pushover, but it's rooted in courage. Okay. There, I'm almost done. Thank God. But now he comes to the husband. And he only needs one verse. He's going to drop kick the husband's. He's been saying, hold on, ladies, I'm getting to your guy. And in verse, in verse 7, he answers the question, well, what if I have a wife? Now he's going broader. It's not one's a Christian, one's not a Christian. No, it's not that now. But what if I have a wife? And he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Interesting last phrase there. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he's saying, husbands, uh, none, of this, none of this abuse stuff, none of this pushing your woman around, none of this expecting that you bark, you say jump and she says how high, None of this treating your woman as a slave. And what guy wouldn't love to be the king of his castle, right? And just, you know, like back in Rome. I mean, what I say goes. I just get my way all the time. And I push people around until it can happen. And Jesus says, that is, that is the stinking, sinful, fallen heart. With me, you don't lord it over people. 
You're considerate as you live with your wives. Peter got this exactly right. And you treat them with respect as a reader, weaker part, partner. The word partner can be translated vessel, as is case, the case. There are some exceptions, but in generally, men are physically stronger than women. They can literally push them around because they're, figure, figure, uh, they're, they're physically stronger. And in the culture, back in, in, in 1 Peter, a woman also had no rights, so they were weaker in that sense as well. And so he said, you need to respect them. I mean, this is unheard of in that culture. You need to respect them because you're full of the Holy Spirit. You're a follower of Jesus. And, and you treat them as your equals, in the, as heirs of the grace of life. You, you treat them as equals in your relationship with Jesus. They are yours. They, they are Jesus. And they share with you in the grace of salvation and the power of the gospel. They're full of the Holy Spirit as well as you. So you treat them like your equal. And then he said, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, God's saying, if I could summarize it this way, don't power up or abuse, but treat her like God's own daughter. God's saying, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. Now, I have two son-in-laws, and they both asked me permission to marry both of our daughters. And uh, I didn't take it easy on them. They asked me, and I didn't say yes till 45 minutes later after quite a few questions because I needed to know what I didn't know about them that could possibly hurt one of my girls because they were my daughters. And God says, that's my daughter. He said, you start mistreating my daughter and I'm pulling the plug on you. I'm turning the, down the volume on your prayers. I'm going to stand. I'm going I'm to exile you. I mean, you will have no more spiritual power in your life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veto your prayers because that's my daughter and you're mistreating her. And may I just say simply, ladies, sometimes you'll hear pastors say, you need to stay in a physically abusive relationship. Listen, listen, if God says, I'm pulling the plug on that guy if he doesn't treat you right, if he violates what he's supposed to be doing, you have every right in the world to pull a plug on him. You need to get to safety. You need to get away. You need, you, you are not bound and obligated in some kind of abusive way. Submission does not mean intentionally subjecting yourself to abuse. I mean, if even God says, I'll pull the plug on the guy, then you have the right, you have the right to exile him as well for a while. It's because you're his daughter. And it puts the fear of God in us as husbands. We want to honor our wives. We want to lift them up. We want to live in that, in that gracious, life-giving submission. And so, you know, when Paul, we read that verse, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're singing and you're submitting, right? You're submitting one to the other. And Paul will go on to say, women, you ought to submit to your husband. And he kind of, par in fact, he uses the word respect instead of submit. And then he says to husbands, he says way more to the husbands. He said, husbands, you ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. Those are hard words for us guys, giving ourselves up. But that's the way we honor the women in our lives because they are the daughters of God himself who follow Jesus and are filled with his spirit. And uh, we have no right to dominate, to abuse, to push around. We have no right to expect that 
that, that just because I say it, my wife does it. But we have a right to enter into mutuality in Christ in our relationship. Sometimes my wife defers to me in my unique role in the family, but, but it's with honor, and, and I don't make big decisions without consulting her, and, and, and I don't want to be abusive to her in any way. I realize God could unplug me if I start abusing her or if I start pushing her around just to get what I want. And I don't treat her with consideration, as Peter said, treat her with respect and as an heir of the gracious life of God. I need someone to say amen right there. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? I'd like to...